We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone if you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is episode number 1,123 with New York Times bestselling author, Austin Cleon. I think people need to read obituaries. I think you need to spend some time every day thinking about people who are here who aren't here anymore and what they did when they were here. I believe strongly that if people thought about death. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Albert Einstein said, the true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. And author Seth Godin said, if it scares you, it might be a good thing to try. My guest today is Austin Kleon. The Atlantic called him positively one of the most interesting people on the internet. He's a speaker for organizations such as Pixar, Google, South by Southwest, and TEDx. And he's the New York Times bestselling author of a trilogy of illustrated books about creativity in the digital age. Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going. This trilogy is now available as a newly recorded and packaged audiobook as well. And in this episode, we discuss the key habits and routines of successful creatives, how to get over the fear of being embarrassed by negativity, why Austin thinks making a full-time living with your art is a terrible way to make a living, how to steal like an artist in order to create your own unique work, and so much more. If you're enjoying this, or if you know some creatives or those that want to be artists and put their work out into the world more, then make sure to copy and paste this link wherever you're listening to this and send it to a few friends right now. Post it on social media, or you can use the show notes link, lewishouse.com slash 1123. And make sure to click subscribe on the School of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening so you can always stay up to date on the latest from the School of Greatness. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only Austin Cleon. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatest Podcast. Very excited about our guest, Austin Cleon. Sounds like Neon is in the house. What's up, my man? How you doing? I'm good. I'm ready. Good, man. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited about this. You are <laughs> extremely well-known in the creative uh, world, in the author world, in the artist world, and uh, also in the business world. But I think uh, I learned about you from Steal Like an Artist, and you've written many New York Times bestselling books. Uh, but steal like an artist is one that I'm like, huh? Is it? Are we should we really be stealing from other people's work? And I want to get into that in a second <laughs> right. about how to effectively steal like an artist to create more uh, unique, innovative ideas based on someone else's ideas. But I'm curious because a lot of people right now are feeling extremely sluggish. They're feeling extremely, I mean, writer's block to the to the <laughs> to the highest degree based on everything that's happening in the world. All the stresses, all the pandemic loss of connection i'm curious do you have any routines that when everything is going against you as an artist whether it be in the morning evening or in the middle of the day to support you in your process of actually putting out something meaningful 
Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer in starting the day without your phone. Mm. So kind of having 30 minutes to an hour first thing in the morning to just kind of drink coffee, wake up. And I like to do one of two things during that hour. I either like to read, which is kind of weird. People think like read in the morning, but it always gives me something to think about and kind of riff off of. So I like, I have a few books around. Sometimes I read, but the main thing I do, the thing that sustained me through this whole pandemic and before that is um, the notebook habit that I keep. I write in a notebook every day and that's sort of the heart. And I, you know, I'm a writer, so that's where a lot of the stuff starts is in the notebook. And I do about three pages in the morning and I just do that no matter what. And that kind of loosens me up. It's sort of like uh, Julia Cameron's morning pages. If people know about that, it's sort of a modified version. Sometimes I draw, sometimes I write in there. And that takes me through. That's like a constant in my creative life. Like no matter what's going on is reading and writing. Um, And it doesn't, and it could be scribbles that no one else is ever going to see. You know, it's kind of like, I think about, I'm an athlete. So I think of sports analogies with everything. You know, when I would go and play basketball, when I was playing basketball heavily at a higher a higher level, you wouldn't start shooting three-pointers. Yeah. You, you would start like, okay, let me do some dribbling drills. Let me do some layups. Let me do a couple right. free throw shots to warm up. And then you back up to the, the bigger ideas, the bigger shots, uh, and you kind of go for it. I mean, maybe some people start with three-pointers like Steph Curry or something, but for me, <laughs> it was always let's warm it up. Let's, yeah, it's warm up. It's like doing push ups. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or or stretching or or anything like that. And I and I do think that um, you know, I, I'm not a sports guy, uh, but I am always, I believe a lot in cross disciplinary mm-hmm. kind of investigations. And so I do. I take from sports the elements of practice and the idea of thinking about writing as a physical activity has been really curious to me because um, thinking of it as, and this, this helps if you write longhand is that you literally are working out certain muscles. I mean, like my hand will cramp when I'm writing, you know? So thinking about writing as a physical activity is something you do with your body. I mean, I think that there's a lot of crosstalk, there's a lot in sports that you can, there's a lot of crosstalk between creative work and sports. I think the big thing about the, the difference I see a lot of times is that in sports, you've got, you know what you kind of want to do. Like you want to sink the ball through the hoop, but when you're doing creative work, you don't know where the hoop is or where you're even going to throw it, you know? So that's kind of, but there are a lot of ways I think they talk to each other. But for me, it's that, it's it's about muscles. It's about mm. memory. It's about practice. What do you think are you, you know? You study this a lot. You do this a lot yourself. You write about these things, but I know you have a, a circle of highly talented creative writers, artists as well that you're connected to. What have you seen? Some of the key habits of just the most successful creatives that you know or you know of. I think what I see is just persistence. I mean, and I think that's across the board and multiple fields. I, I have seen people, the fun thing about getting older and being around for a while is I have literally seen people that I was like, well, they, that sucks. I don't, who cares? And then five years later, they're really good. And they have a huge audience. Like I've literally, they were nobody. They're tweeting yeah. at you like, Oh, check out my work. And you're like, right. Oh, it's horrible. That's why you have three followers. 
And there are people who have sent me, I mean, I've boned up. There are some famous people now who have sent me books that I just ignored that now are way more popular than me. So, I mean, it's like, it's just you, I think persistence sticking around. Really? Just, Wait, so who are some of these famous people that sent you books to, to what, review or to take oh, a look I at? Oh, I wouldn't. And it wasn't anything <laughs> like, it wasn't anything malicious. There's right. just people that like, well, I'll tell you, there's a guy named James Clear, Atomic oh, Habits. I know James. I've known James for over a decade. I met yeah. him when he when he had a, like a small little blog back yeah. in Ohio in 2009. We met, and he was just getting started. Yeah, and he's from guys, Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, so he yeah. grew up. So he's like from pretty close to where I grew up. I grew up in Circleville, like 40 minutes south. I grew up in Delaware, Ohio. Oh well, so Ohio We're neighbors. We're all talking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sniff out each other eventually. <laughs> eventually. <laughs> so James sent me Atomic Habits, or his publicist sent me Atomic Habits when it, you know, early. And I just kind of looked at it and I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And just put it away because I was doing something else, you know, and like late, you know, now it's like his newsletter has like a million followers. Mm -hmm. And I read it. Um, I finally read it last year just because I was, you know, I was kind of like, puttering out myself i was like oh, i could use some better habits i should you know read this book it was great He's you know the, and i was like well writer. what a moron i was i could have <laughs> been in on the but you know it's one of those things where i sent him an email and he's too famous he doesn't check his email anymore so it's like oh well that's fine but like that's the other thing as a um i was that way too when i was i mean you just stick around and yeah. and i just think it's interesting how um, but I love that. I think it's, it makes me feel great because it's like, there's just so much possibility, you there's know, so and possibility. there's just people I remember. I, I, I just mentioned James cause he's not going to care. I wouldn't mention anyone else's name, but you know, there's just people I just thought, Oh, and now they're doing great and they have a big audience and they do a lot for people. And you know, that's the other thing that, I try to tell people all the time. I'm like, you know, instead of saying this sucks, I don't like this. I don't care. Just say it's not for you. Just mm. say it, it wasn't for me because that, that, that phrase, it wasn't for me just means it's not for you right now mm -hmm. because it, and it, 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 it can still be for other people. And if you use that phrase, it can also mean it could be for me later because I'll be a different person on down the road and maybe it's for me then, you know? So I try to like use that phrase. I I'm, you know, I'm a writer. So I think a lot about language and, and the, the words that people use. And it wasn't for me feels like you, it's better than that sucks or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you right. know what I mean? Like it, sure. it leaves open possibility. Absolutely. I, I love that. I love being wrong though too. You know, I'm someone who I love being wrong because that means I'm going to learn something. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. Uh, did you grow up in Circleville with uh, A.J. Hawk and kind of that crew of guys that went off to Ohio State and the NFL? Oh, um, I'm trying to think guys? of who. So my dad worked for Ohio State. Um, he was a 4-H agent. So we could get tickets. Um I like the basketball. I was, I was, I was really into uh, Ohio State basketball when like Jimmy Jackson and Lawrence Funderburk and stuff. They were, was they the were time, playing. Man. That was amazing. So like my mom and I would go to those games, and that was fun. Yeah. I still really like basketball. 
Um, but that was, yeah. So we would go up there and, um, I, you know, I, I remember, I do remember going to Ohio state. It was just all Ohio state propaganda in my house. You know? <laughs> like Michigan sucks. That's, that's every house in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are some of the other, I'm hearing you say persistence as one of the, the key habits. What are some other habits you're seeing of great creatives, uh, besides just showing up and just improving day after day, year after year until they put out some good work. I think a willingness to suck is, mm. is great. You know, willing to be bad until you're okay. Um, I also have decided that to be a public person, um, which, you know, part of having your work out in the world means you're going to be a public person. It helps to not have an embarrassment gene. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm a pretty extroverted guy. I don't mind learning in public. I, I really don't mind being like almost wrong in public or, or being rough in public, you know, because I, I, I just don't really have a humiliation gene in me. And, my, and it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm a, I'm a dad and I have two boys and one of my boys is just like me, like he'll do stuff in front of people. He doesn't care. Like he'll learn something in front of you. My other boy is an introvert and he's the exact opposite. He needs to go away and learn things before he shares with people. And, but I think the people who are a little bit more extroverted and are okay with being messy in public, I think they have a little bit of an advantage. You know, there's a fine line between being a sociopath and an artist, unfortunately. <laughs> And you can see that in the culture, right? <laughs> I mean, but there is, there's just a little edge though, because yeah. over time, the people who are often doing their thing, they will catch up and they'll be even better. So I, I do think there's a little bit of a, like being, being willing to be embarrassed, yeah. embar embarrassed or, or be rough or, or, or be wrong in public. I think that helps too, but you know, like, <laughs> Showing up, mm -hmm. persistence, being willing to be wrong, being flexible, quickly, you know, being improvisational with what happens. How do you think people get over the fear of the embarrassment, the, the public criticism, the public laughing, the snarky replies or comments or horrible reviews? How do we get over that? Because I feel like it's something that cripples people from, <clears throat> excuse me, from actually just putting out something. They talk about writing their book for five to ten years. They have this brilliant idea. They want to put out their screenplay. They want to put out something, their podcast, whatever it is. But they're so afraid of people laughing at them, of it not being perfect. And no one's ever going to be perfect the first time you put out anything. Yeah. It's taken me you know, 12 years to be where I'm at, and I'm still growing, and I still right. make mistakes. Right. So what do you think people need to do in order to overcome that fear of embarrassment? Read obituaries. I think people need to read obituaries. I think you need to spend some time every day thinking about people who are here who aren't here anymore and what they did when they were here because it couldn't get, I mean, what's the worst that could happen, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, I really, I believe strongly that if people thought about death a lot more, um, because it's interesting when you read obituaries, they're not really about death. They're about life. They're about lives that were lived. And there's something about reading obituaries for me that just opens up a whole, 
first of all, there's always that kind of human rush of, and this is terrible, but I think it's true. There's always that kind of human rush when you read an obituary where you're like, I'm alive. I'm still alive. You know, like this person's gone, but I'm, I'm here. And like, what should I do now? You know, if it doesn't completely cripple you. Um, but I have felt like, um, I had a friend, uh, uh, the artist Jason Poland died last year and, um, he died before the pandemic, really. He, he had cancer. And when I heard Jason died, I sort of felt like it was the first obituary I had read that was really close to. Mm. And I, what, what did it say? Do you remember? Well, I mean, it was just, you know, Jason Poland, famous artist, thir- dies at 37, tried to draw New York, you know. Um, but the thing that... I felt like my pen was haunted after Jason died. Really? I felt very much this urge to, I, I had a few of the pens that he used kind of laying around the studio. And so I, w- I was drawing with them and I was drawing a lot. And I felt this real urge right after he left, like I have to keep doing this because someone I'm very interested. <laughs> I'm interested in like, I'm interested in the more, um, I like fictional, I, even if you don't really believe in spirits or ghosts or something, I think they're really useful fiction sometimes. So like one time I was, I was reading this interview with Michael Jackson and he said, you know, as crazy as they get, right? Michael Jackson, he was saying, you don't understand if I'm not here to receive these ideas, God will give them to Prince. and i and i thought i love that though even if you don't believe in god or if you don't believe in spirits or it it, i think there's something to who's gonna who's gonna do this work if i don't do it like now that jason's gone like who's gonna keep drawing who's gonna keep the spirit alive who's gonna pass this on and um it was interesting i wrote my first obituary last year i my my aunt becky died and um the family asked me if i would write it and i think every obituary you read it could have been so many other things too like Mm. a writer picks very specific things to put in an obituary but you could go a million different ways with it and when you're writing an obituary there's different kinds of obituaries of course but the kind i was trying to write was like honoring the family's general you know idea of this person like who was aunt becky um and but then i started thinking about who aunt becky was to me and i could have written a whole different obituary so i just think obituaries are this thing because they and there's so many of them now that almost it's too much but even before the pandemic I just felt this deep connection to obituaries because there was always some little nugget in each obituary that I could use and I could rattle some of them off, you know, yeah, I share just, some of them. They keep, there was a comedy writer named, um, I don't remember his name. Uh, Tom, I'd have to look in my files, but there was a comedy writer who said, you know, I've woken up every day of my life wondering if I could still do this that pops in my head. Like, here's this guy, Tom cock, I think was his name or Coke. I, he, he, he was uh, like a 
like a writer for sitcoms or, or something like that. But he was like, I've literally woken up every day. And he was like in his eighties or something. I've literally woken up every day wondering if I could do this again. Um, there was another obituary about, um, I think it's Phyllis and the Dillons. They were this African-American couple who did science fiction illustration covers. And they talked about when they worked together there was um, a third thing that happened. There was the two of them, but then mm. together there was this third thing and they called it it. There was something about their collaboration. And I, I remember that strongly thinking, oh, that's like my wife and I, when we work, it's like, we're making this third thing, this out of this, this bond. So, you know, I just have this file in my head there's always something to learn from obituaries. It's a, you know, Joan Rivers joked, she said, it's a great way to meet men. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host so listen we all know life is full of yada yada like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print and i know you've dealt with yada yada before like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else and yes it is possible to outsmart yada yada like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is all already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. <laughs> you know, because she was old, she'd read the obituaries. Oh, he's free now. But like, wow. the, the, it's also a great way to meet people that you don't know. Mm. You just look in the obituaries every day. So I think people should read obituaries. And think what? About what happens to you when you start reading them? Um, I'm just curious. I mean, curiosity, just like, oh, this is interesting, you know, just because it's always interesting to read about people. And they're usually written in a very, the fun thing about writing an obituary, I mean, it wasn't fun. I mean, but the fun thing about, actually, I don't know that that's true. And that that is a weird 
that's a weird feeling to have. Actually, I, I really enjoyed writing my, I didn't want to write my, my aunt's obituary, but I, it was the, one of the most, it was the most important piece of writing I did mm. last year. Mm. But the thing that was cool about, I, I called my father-in-law who's been a newspaper reporter for 35 years. His name's, uh, it, it, he was until he retired. He worked for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. His name is Tom Farron. And Tom sort of walked me through the obit process because he's he's won awards with his obituaries. And they all they have a structure and they have a, a, a there's a format to writing an mm. obituary and you rely on that. It's there's a there's a there's a way it's done and it's not worth reinventing the wheel with it because so you as you read obituaries, you understand the format which takes it through takes you through to the interesting stuff. You know, you get mm -hmm. all the information right away and then you can dive into the interesting stuff. Like my wife, uh, Megan has a, she, she talks about documentaries now and how many documentaries are really interesting. But after you watch a documentary, you have to go to Wikipedia to actually find out the very basic information that you, mm -hmm. they didn't cover in the docu right. documentary. But obituaries do that right away. Like so-and-so who was 78 died at her home here. Mm -hmm. uh, she's, you know, and there's these, there are these, there's a format to it. And so they, they are comforting because it's comforting to read. It's comforting to read things where you know they're going to go but there's going to be some surprises along the way. Yeah. What would you want your obituary to say if it was, if you died tomorrow? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. It's really interesting. I, it's weird. Cause I read them all the time, but I just don't, I mean, I would like people to say, uh, you know, I, I wish it would say he's survived by his loving family. You know, I mean, that's all I really care about. It's like he survived by his two sons and his wife, you know, um, loving wife, loving family. Um, I think it would, you know, but I, I, I would just, you know, I've made poems about this. It's like, I just want to be someone who this wasn't wasted on. That's what I would want the obituary. I would want... I guess life, I don't life care. wasn't wasted on. Yeah, I don't care about the text almost as much as the subtext, which is this wasn't wasted on him. Mm. <laughs> you know? So that's what I kind of go for. I just, you know, especially as I get a little bit older, it's like I just don't want to make a I'm very interested, for example, in people whose success they didn't waste it, you know. Mm -hmm. They 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 take their success and try to do something bigger with it. That's something yeah. that I you know, that's something I look at someone like, like in the literary world, there's a lot of people who have done a lot of good that people are sort of blase about, like someone like Dave Eggers, like Dave Eggers is a guy who I think, you know, it's, he's been around so long. It's very easy to sort of, oh yeah, Dave Eggers, huh. But like what he's built with his success and what he built with his success very early on, like with McSweeney's and with the A29 program, A26, A26, um, the writing centers and just all of that advocacy work. I'm like, you know, he's someone who's really took, I, I appreciate that now someone who mm. takes their success and really and pays it forward. Yeah. Yeah. And makes a world with it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm always trying to think about that. The problem with me is um, my, 
you know, my books being popular has coincided with becoming a father. Like Steel Like an Iris came out in March and then my first son, Owen, came in October. So I've never done this without having a really young family. And I just don't have the juice to do too much more than raise these kids and write these books. So at this um, stage of your life, yeah. At this stage in my life. And, and, and I think people forget that. It's like, you can have it all, just not at once. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. right. You know, so for me right now, it's just work and family. And that's it. That's all I, my work and my family. And that's, that's pretty much all I have uh, time for. And so for people that feel stuck or that they have these ideas or dreams for years and they never take action on them. I'm hearing you say, read more obituaries because it'll get you into realizing the people that did take action and what their life looked like and the people that didn't take action and what their life could have been had they taken action. Why do you think, why do you think it takes us so long for some people, not everyone, but for so long of us to put our ideas out there? Why, how is that fear of embarrassment so strong that we're willing to take it to our grave, our ideas and our dreams, and never put them out there. I think there's also an ambition gene, or there's something in people that they just want it really bad. Um, you just have to really want it. And it's not something that can be willed. John Baldessari used to say that, you know, you have to have something and that can't be willed. And, um, you know, you just have to want it more than not, you, you have to want it more than the failure would hurt. You, you know what I mean? Like the pain to, of failure, the yeah. pain of failure, like, yeah. And, and, you, but I mean, there's so many people who don't get it, you know, even if they want it really bad. Um, yeah, they never get recognized for their work. They don't get yeah. a big audience. No one buys no. their stuff. But at least they put it out there. At least they created it, right? I'd rather create and have five people read or watch or listen yeah. and be proud of me putting something out there that I yeah. cared of than think about something I care about and never act on it. There And there's two things. There's the making and there's the sharing. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing is to always be making. Um, the most important thing, I think, is to be – in love with the doing, with the verbs, the the, the actual acts, the dribble. If you want to talk in sports terms, you know the, the dribbling, the shooting, the, the practice, <laughs> the practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the sharing is another. St- there's there's always a sort of like generosity in the making, in a sense, just because you're like, I don't know if it's generosity. Sharing is about generosity. It's about and and maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's 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 putting yourself into your craft enough that you come up with something that you genuinely feel like needs to be in the world. I think a lot of people, you know, they're just not there yet. They know and and I think this happened to me when I was really younger. I, I mean, when I first started out, I knew I wasn't any good. I knew that I didn't have work that was good enough that anyone should care. But I wanted to be part of the world, like right then. And that's when I started my blog. And I I was, you know, I was right out of college. It was like 2005. And I started going to readings. I wanted to be a fiction writer then. 
I have no talent for fiction. I have no talent for inventing <laughs> things, which quickly became obvious, but I really wanted to be a fiction writer. And so I would go and I would, uh, I would go to readings by fiction writers and I would take my sketchbooks and I would draw the writers as they were reading uh, because, you know, nobody draws. I mean, people take pictures, but like nobody draws. And if you just sit, in a room and don't move too much when you're drawing no one really notices unless they're right next to you so it was like it was a great thing to do but then i took the drawings and i would post them on my blog when i got home and i met more writers that way i can't tell you i mean i i met some from really, them seeing your drawings from and them like, oh thank drawings. you because everybody has a google alert on their right, name right. and everyone loves to be drawn i mean absolutely Especially if it's not a bad drawing. I mean, people don't if want it's a bad, bad drawing. drawing. They're like, oh, this is crap. Yeah, but if it's like a cool drawing, and if you put some words underneath the drawing mm. that that show that you were paying attention, and you link to their book, then, then you really, then you're really being generous, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and yes, and they're more apt to share it. So it's like uh, that was like my way of starting. Is I'm going to draw other people's books, and then. So I would draw them at readings. The other thing I started doing is I started making these maps of people's books. I would actually read a book and then I would draw a map of it, um, of like the ideas in the books. And I would post that online. And I That's met a cool. lot of writers that way. That's cool. So basically what I was doing was I was studying how writers were in the world and what they were doing and drawing them. But then I was also studying their books and drawing their books. And that was all just, it, it turned out to be, Instead of drawing other people's books, now I draw my own books. Right. It was all the practice reps. You know, I, yeah. I've, I've interviewed Robert uh, Green many times, and he yeah. said, I didn't start out as this writer who was writing these unique, weird, interesting type of books structured in the way that I do, The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, you know, Mastery. Right. He's like, I wasn't writing those books 20 years ago. I was doing copywriting for five years. Then I worked at a newspaper for a couple of years. Then I worked as a screenwriter and I was actually never great at any of these things. I was good, but it wasn't the main, it wasn't my calling, but it led me to the next thing, which led me to the next thing, which right. created this web of, of influences and range as you will of mm -hmm. creative work to then put it into my own type of work, 48 laws of power, art of seduction, mastery, you know, all these things that people loved. And it took, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years for him to develop that skill, just like what it sounds like you did. Okay, you were consuming uh, these live readings, you were drawing the, them, then you were mapping out their work, and then you made it your own. But I was a fan first. Yeah. I was a good fan first. And you get that from, like, if you watch old clips of, like, Kobe Bryant, he'll talk about, like... I'm just a fan of all these people and I'm just stealing their moves and I'm just trying to do, I'm trying to do the game better. And Kobe's one of those, he was one of those guys that grew up with VHS tapes, which makes it completely, you know, the way I've had it explained to me is it's like when you can watch replays of other players and famous players and watch their moves, you can do study. You can study on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> As a player, you know, you don't have to be like up against them to and, and that that idea that you're a fan first, that you ingest all this stuff first and you take it in and it mixes around. And then through your practice, all that stuff 
comes gushing out eventually and it comes mm. out in a new it's like a gumbo in your head you know you're just adding stuff and eventually you ladle it out and it's something new is there such a thing as an original or new thought or is everything an old thought that's repackaged in an innovative way i think there's definitely such a thing as an original thought I don't think it's original in the way we think of it, though. I think an original thought is usually the result of what we've just been talking about. It's someone who has been usually people who have really original thoughts. And let's back up for a minute. There are lots of original thoughts. I mean, four-year-olds have very original thoughts all the time. It's an original thought that changes the world or that changes the you know, the, the, the field or whatever. Mm -hmm. Usually that is from someone who is deeply doing exactly what we're talking about is yeah. deeply uh, connected to either sources that came before them or, or the scene around them. Um, you know, very rarely is something I, I'm trying to think of an example of, of something that is, new and original that changes the world that comes from someone who wasn't doing the kind of work that we were talking right. about. Have you, read, uh, have you read David Epstein's range? I love that book. I just wrote about it on my blog. I think it's a, um, Amazing I book. think it's sort of an instant classic. It's so good. What David did in that book. Uh, you know, I, I think it's uh Ryan holiday had a really good, um, he told me it was a parenting book in disguise. And I think Ryan's right. Mm, yeah. Um, that well, book, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for me to love that book because it was sort of a, <laughs> it was kind of a, a validation me too. of how <laughs> I've, you know, kind of lived my life. Yeah. Um, and the fact that range can speak to like, I always think a book is really good when I'm still, first of all, if you're still thinking about a book two weeks after you read it, that's pretty good. If you're thinking about it a year after you read it, that's very good. And if you think about things in the news and how they could be chapters in the book, then it's very, very good. Mm. Um, David's yeah, book, you know, I was reading about the Williams sisters and I thought, well, this could have been in David's book, you know, because mm -hmm. the Williams sisters were talking about how they were hanging out with the Mannings. They were like doing some sort of charity thing. And the Mannings suck at tennis. I mean, they were trying out tennis and they really were bad. But Venus was saying they had this skill from practice. You could tell that every shot they hit, they were getting like a little bit better. Every they time. were taking the feedback. Mm -hmm. And she said by the end of like how many ever hours or minutes they were together, they were okay. Right. You know, and I, I just think like that is you can see that in the creative field, too. There's something to or in the creative fields. There's something about learning what it's like to start with uh, a certain kind of time, space and materials and getting something out of it. There's something about that that translates to other mediums that you can kind of, so I, I actually think, and this is very, I think this is unpopular, this, the, this way of thinking, but I think that like, if you're like a really good writer, for example, you know, you might be an okay film editor mm. because you know what it's like to shape things. Or if you're a film editor, you might be a really good writer because you know what it's like to take material and just shape, you know what I mean? So I think there's a kind of cross disciplinary, uh, cross medium 
I think creativity, you get, it's like a thing that you do and you can do it in different realms. Yeah. I, uh, I think you're right. And maybe I'm just validating myself in my childhood because my parents put me in every type of sport, mm-hmm. you know, it was seven different sports yeah. a year. And so you're always going to a different thing for that season, sometimes two things for that season. I don't know if kids are doing that today or if that's what parents are doing now. But for us back in Ohio, it was like, okay, you're doing soccer and football and you're doing baseball and basketball and you're doing this camp and swimming and tap dancing. It was like I was doing every type of athletic sport there was available for me. Maybe because my parents were just like, get out of the house and, you know, get our hair. But it was probably, but they didn't specialize me, which I'm really grateful for because I think. That's a gift. Maybe I could have been unbelievably specialized and talented at one thing, and I never was. I was always really good at all these different sports, but I was never the best on any team. Right. Maybe when I got in high school, I was like, you know, whatever, the starter and the best and, and, and stuff. But growing up, I was never the best. And it was the the range of things that I was able to cross-pollinate to different sports and apply where people that I would see who were only playing basketball, they didn't have certain skills yeah. that I was able to develop. And I'm not saying I was better than them, but I was I was able to see things differently based on catching a football for three months yeah. and running routes and then applying that to basketball as opposed to them just only playing basketball and shooting shots and being on that field. And maybe they were better for a little bit as specialized, but over the season, I could apply these other range of skills to just be an overall better player, teammate, you know, those things. So I think it's important in in every discipline that you're in to develop a range of skills. And you're going to suck at some of these things at at points. (laughs) But I think it's important because it will make you a more interesting human in the long run. Absolutely. And there's a dark side to what you were talking about uh, with specialization, especially in sports. I mean, you see a lot of 20-year-olds like break their femur. And you're done. And you're just over. Your identity is crippled because you have no no other thing that you're good at that but also the reason your femur is broken is because you only play one sport and look these at, repetitive like a tiger woods just constantly hitting the ball over and over his back is broken yeah yeah so it's like um what you're talking about doing multiple sports you're actually like building your body in different ways like and an off season and rest is like really really important this is something as a culture i feel like we've like completely lost track of what rest is and what it means to rest and to have time off and how important rest and sleep is to complete a lot of the activities that we do um the post season is is huge you yeah, know, there's, there's the, I mean, there's the postseason, the preseason. The it's season. part of the work. Exactly. All these things are part of the work. It's not just that the work happens in the season, like exactly. the postseason and the preseason. I mean, and I think I think the closest thing that I do to sports, I mean, other than like doing push-ups or something, is um, I play the piano. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader: new cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. <laughs> Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. 
Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. And I'm always, there comes a point practicing the piano where you're just done for the day. You're like, okay, this is, you know, you get, like, you, blah, get blah, a, blah, blah, blah. you get to a point where it's good and then it gets worse and you say, okay, I, this is, but then you sleep on it and this magical thing happens when you go back to the keyboard the next day, you can do it. And you can and do I, it like perfectly. And you're like Bach. You're just like, blah, 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 you know, yeah. Beethoven. <laughs> and it really feels like, I mean, your brain worked it out, you know? And I just, I believe deeply in the power of a, a good night's sleep on, on pretty much anything. Yeah. I'm doing that. I'm learning that right now in, I'm taking Spanish classes. It's been a, oh, something yeah. I've been wanting to do for 20 years and I always yep. say I'm going to do it and then I never do. And Same I here. try and I get tired and I'm exhausted and my brain hurts so much right now, yeah. Austin, when I'm <laughs> taking these classes and I feel like I'm not improving at all most of the time. <laughs> but then sometimes I take a couple of days off and I come back and I'm getting a little bit. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this and I'm connecting the dots and you need you can't just force it all the time in your brain. You need that rest time as yeah. well. Yeah. What would you and say we, to what would you say cool. to people that are are always in um, idea phase, always in thinking about phase, and they're not finishing work? Maybe they're doing starting the work, but they're never finishing. Let alone posting or publishing or shipping. They're not even completing. And they just keep talking about, I'm writing, I'm in the process, I'm in the process. What do you say for people like that uh, on how they can actually complete something and ship it? Deadlines. I mean, for me, I've told people, I, I, so it's um, death and deadlines. So we talked earlier about death and obituaries. That's the, that's the gun to your back or the nudge, yeah. you know. But the deadline is the, is the real... Having a deadline, even if it's artificial, is the only way to work, in my opinion, to have to show something at some point to somebody is the only thing that keeps me, you know, I've got deadlines right now that I don't even, I don't even have a boss or anything, but I've got deadlines to myself. But if you're not, if you don't get an advance and some publisher down your throat for a deadline, how do you create that deadline? Well, I, you know, like, I just want to put out this blog post, right? Uh, it's not perfect yet. Well, I, I have, so I have internal deadlines. So for example, I try to blog every day, which is overkill, but I've noticed that when I blog every day, good things happen, uh, that ideas come quicker to me. I'm thinking a lot more. Um, I might not be writing a book as well, but like, I'm learning a lot more and then people are hitting the website more and that means more trap. You know, it's just like a nice stew of things. But I would say the reason I blog every day is more for my benefit uh, uh, personally, just that I learn things and I have to make things. And then when I blog them after I've hit publish is when I realize what the piece was actually about. And then <laughs> I'm like, okay, I need to scribble more notes or have a follow-up post, or this needs to be a book chapter, you know? And then the other deadline I have is every week I have to put out this newsletter. So there's, I'm always in the back of my mind. It's kind of like, well, what's the big piece for the newsletter this week? 
Like, what's that going to be? What have you done? You know, and so I sort of have this internal deadline editorial calendar in my head, if not on paper, that just sort of nudges me along. And I told people that a long time ago. I said, you know, I didn't start a blog because I had something to say. I ha- I started a blog to figure out what I had to say. Mm. Because when you're looking at that blank WordPress box or whatever it is, you're inspired to like, what do I fill this with? And that is the question, you know, and if you do that every day and it's the same thing with a blank page, it's like, you look at a blank page and you're like, what could this, what could be in this, you know, Um, that's pretty much all I need. But the other thing is, and I say this a lot, is like, discipline with desire is easy. If you want discipline, isn't that hard. If you have real desire, I mean, if you want something bad enough, the discipline's not too difficult. I think discipline without desire is very difficult, but when you have the desire, I mean, you know, I, I'm always pretty self-deprecating. I don't know if it's from being from Ohio or being Midwestern or whatever it is, but at the end of the day, you know, I wanted this. You know, I wanted this really bad. <laughs> you know, um, you had the desire. You wanted to make something. I had the desire. Forward. You wanted to put it out in the world. You wanted people to recognize it, all that stuff. I wanted to be my heroes. I wanted to be, wow. I wanted to write books. You know, I just, I, I, that's what I wanted to be. I want, you know, and, 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 um, I, I'm not trying to diminish people who really want it, who it's not happened for them because that's not what I'm talking about. And that's not what we're talking about. I mean, it's one thing to go after things hard and not get them, but it's a different thing to not go after them in the first place. That's true. Which I think is usually people's. Yeah. And I've put out work that I had high hopes for. I was like, man, I put a lot of time and energy into this thing. I wrote a book called the mask of masculinity that came out in 2017. And I remember, or no, 2018, 2017, I think. And I remember being like, man, I, put, I spent a year and a half researching this. This is, for me, yeah. this is the most meaningful, important piece of work I've ever done in my life, yeah. piece of content. It's about masculine vulnerability, how men can mm-hmm. like tear down the walls that hold them back from feeling deeper, from connecting to their partners more, from having more peace and love in their heart for the world, for all these things. I interviewed all the top researchers, you know, all this. And it was the most vulnerable thing, opening up about all these different traumas, everything. And it was a, it was like a call to men to kind of like open up and a call for women to learn more about the men in their lives who might be guarded. And I remember I was like, even if a lot of people don't read this, it's going to be my most important piece of work probably that I'll ever do uh, because of the healing that could take place for people that do read it. And I mean, it's done well. But it didn't hit the New York Times bestseller list, like right. my first book. Right. And you know, so there's some letdown of like, oh, I had high hopes and this and that. Yeah. And, it, and it continues to sell and do well, but it's like it didn't do as well as my first book. And I, and in a little bit, I also knew that. I was like, it's more of a niche idea. It's not as broad mm-hmm. for the world. Um, it's more for people that really want to dive into this. Uh, but you still have this sense of like, okay, well. There's some, there's some letdown, or there's some, you know, you put all this energy into something that doesn't do the way you want it, uh, and so, and you got to let go of that expectation, right? 
Absolutely you do. I mean, that happens to me with every book. I mean, the funny thing is about books is if you're lucky enough to keep them in print, you just don't know when a book is going to come back around. I mean, it was funny because when Keep Going came out, which is the third in the trilogy I just wrapped up, I just thought, oh, man, I nailed this. This is, this is the <laughs> like, best this one. <laughs> this is like... This is so tight. It's like the last crusade. It's like, okay, everyone really likes Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then there's Temple of Doom, which is really tricky and whatever. But this is like the last crusade. It's like a return to form. It's like, whatever. You know, I was like, this is just going to. This, uh, this is end game. You know, like, yeah. bam. You know, and it it did fine and did well. And I had a wonderful book tour. It just didn't like blow up. I was like, this is the Oprah book. Like Oprah's going to get this. She's going to be like, oh, you know, you have these delusions of grandeur <laughs> in your mind as a writer. And then this really funny thing happened is like the pandemic hit. And then people started to say, I realized like, oh, this is like a pandemic guide. This is going to be like, people are going to pick this up because like the first, it's Groundhog Day. We're talking on Groundhog Day. This won't play on Groundhog Day. But like the first chapter in that book is every day is Groundhog Day. <laughs> it's like everyone in the pandemic has been like, oh, man, this feels like Groundhog Day. I was like, well, this is the book to get through the pandemic. But then this really funny thing happened. Show Your Work took off, my second book, because people in the pandemic are like, how do I show I, I this is a great time for me to maybe like get my side hustle going or like start a new blog or a website. How do I do that? So people are like picking up show your work now and it's having like a moment mm. and it's like, you just don't know with these things. And it is a great lesson in ego reduction. And it's a great lesson just about art in general. And it's been true of every artist who's ever put work out in the world, the stuff that is the closest to you is not the stuff that will take off. Interesting. And the stuff that you feel like is you just piddling around <laughs> playing is going to be the stuff that everybody loves. Everybody's going to love that stuff. And you just have to balance out. It's just about making a lot of work and putting it out there mm. because nobody knows anything. Nobody. I mean, the screenwriter, uh, I think it's William Goldman, Golding. I can never remember his last name. He said it. He was like, nobody knows anything. That is the number one rule of Hollywood. It's true in publishing. Nobody knows anything. I try to remind myself all the time with Steel Like an Artist. That was written by a 27-year-old overnight for a – I mean, it was thrown together almost quick, quick for, a, for a talk. And then it became a blog post, and then it was put together in two months. Wow. I had two months to finish that book, and it was like rough and just – I had no idea what I was doing other than I had this idea that, you know, I – I mean, I was – I figured, what the hell? Let's go for it, you know? And it's just like – and then the book, it just Boom. doesn't stop, you yeah. know? And, and it's like – it's like a first album for a band or something. They've got everything that's going up. Even though it wasn't my first book, you know, it it, it had all this material mm -hmm. that I built up over like ten years, and it was it was quick and dirty, man. People love like I mean, it's got an energy. There's something about embodied energy and art that you know, art contains energy, and it it 
is released through the reader. Like a book has embodied energy that the authors put in, but it's released by the reader. Mm-hmm. And every time somebody comes back to steal like an artist, it just has this, it's like a punk album or something. It's mm-hmm. like, it just go comes in fast and there's a bunch of stuff and people just get unlocked by it. You know, for me, it's like, I mean, you know, Mary Carr, the, who is 20 times the writer I'll ever be, she has talked about reading old work and she says she's a Texan, you know? So she's like, it's like sniffing old dog turds. <laughs> I mean, Mary Carr is like written. I mean, and then she's just like this goddess to me, you know, but she still speaks in that Texas vernacular. It's like sniffing old dog turds. You know, the minute you finish something, the execution of a project means it's dead to you in a sense. I mean, it, it's for someone else then. But it never ceases to amaze me the things that take off. You know, what is easy is often what is that crazy that goes. The problem is, is you got to balance that knowledge with the work you really want to do and the stuff that you really think will last and and make an impact. Yeah. And to follow up on that, a lot of people think that making a living with art or their content or writing or music is impossible to make a a full-time living or a living that's an abundant living. Uh, What advice would you give to those that want to make a full-time living with their art and not be a starving artist? Don't. (laughs) I think it's a terrible way to make a living. I still do. I would also caution people. You know, I think a hundred percent of people should practice an art and about one you know, 0.05% should actually try to make a living off of it. And that's controversial now. Everyone's supposed to be able to make a living off the what they love. I just, if you look at the history, there's just not that many people that make a living off their art, man. It's just not in the cards for a lot of people. I mean, there's usually, you know, there's usually, my, my friend Hugh McLeod has this thing called the sex and cash theory where it's like, there's always like the sexy part of the job and then there's this part that makes the actual money. Um, I don't know if I would say it in that terms, but it's sort of like, for me, I don't really make a living off my passion. Like, I mean, I make a living off the byproducts of my passion. You know, like a, a lot of this, like my books are just the byproduct of me trying to figure out how to make art. Mm. They're not my art. And I think it's, that's hard for people to hear sometimes because the books mean something to them. And I, they mean a lot to me. Well, it's too. a different, it's a different type of art for it's, you. It's, it's not, it has art in it, but it's not like, for me, it's not art. It's a book. It's attempting to do something. It's attempting mm. to be, it's a package. It's attempting to do something for the reader. Um, well, but it's a helpful. Know, it's a helpful packaged piece of art. I okay, that's fine. I think it's a book. I mean, I I, right. I love a book's books. a piece of art. I feel like a book is is art in my mind because the way you package, the way you write it, the way you design it, the way you envision an idea in people's minds is artistic. It sure can be. I mean, a book can be. And there yours are a lot is, of books that has aren't. art in it. Yours has got <laughs> draw. You know. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is, I didn't you, set out to art. be. Well, and I didn't set out to be a self-help author, to be quite honest. I mean... You wanted to write fiction. Yeah. I mean, I started out, I wanted to be Kurt Vonnegut, or I wanted to be George Saunders, or I wanted to be Linda Berry, or I wanted to be Saul Steinberg. You know, I mean, I wanted... But 
one of the things that happens in your life is you realize what your skills are. And I happen to have a skill set that's very unique. Um, I'm never going to be the best writer. We talked about this earlier. Never going to be the best writer in the room. Never going to be the best artist in the room. Never going to be the best like web guy in the room. Never going to be the best reader in the room. Never going to be the smartest guy in the room. But you add all these things up. And what I do is very, you know, it's unique. And it's mm-hmm. there's so a you, niche so for it. What I'm hearing you say is you make a full-time living off of your skill set, not your art. Yeah, maybe. I mean, what do I make a living off of? Book sales, speaking. I would make a living off merch if I could get off my butt and get my online store back open. Uh, you know, uh, but it's the stuff around the actual work. It's not like mm. the nobody's I'm not getting rich off my collages or my like blackout poems. You know what I mean? Like it's the stuff around the work is what I mm. make my living with. And I do think sometimes it would be easier if I did have a day job because then I could just, you know, you always, everybody wants to, I was talking to my friend James Flynn the other day and he's a, he's a filmmaker in LA and he was joking about, there's a clip with Dave Chappelle where Chappelle's talking about how every comedian wants to be a musician and every musician wants to be a comedian and every athlete wants to be a singer. Right. Everybody wants to to do something else. They think like, Oh, that'd be really great. You know? I think part of maturity is just being okay with like, this is what I do, you know? So like, like, this is what I do. I just do this weird thing, you know? So how, so you were able to make a living from not your art, but taking your art and packaging it into a different skill set that people needed and were willing to pay for. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Actually. Um, what I'm saying is that there was a byproduct of making that art mm. that was more interesting to people than the actual art itself. Interesting. So my explorations of the life of my, my, the process was more interesting to people than the product. The, interesting. the process how to, how to process, not, your actual work. Right. Of trying now that wasn't, that's not always true. I mean, sometimes people like my art and, and, but the majority of people I would say come to me because they're interested in my way of thinking about creative work. They're interested in me as a sort of like giving them ideas about how they can go about their own practice. But also I'm uh, kind of a magpie of, I mean, I just, I look at a lot of different things and I think I'm able to talk about it in a way that's really accessible to people. So I'm always pointing people towards interesting things that can be uh, helpful for their work, you know? Um, So it's really the work around the art that I think people are really interested in. And then, you know, I use the art as, sometimes I use it as like, it's not decoration, but it's almost like an illustration, you know, my own art becomes like the illustrations for the stuff. You you remind me of my my brother a little bit. He's uh he's the number one jazz violinist in the world, and he was making a full time living touring as a jazz violinist, which is probably I don't know three to five people jazz violinists making you know over a hundred grand a year in the world or something. It's a very niche 
piece of art uh, skill. And yes, and he traveled 200 days a year and was hustling nonstop to play in like pubs for like 20 people and you know all this stuff, and you know schlepping CDs back in the day and just trying to you know do the thing and make money yeah. as an artist. And it was hard. And he spent I watched him spend 20 years doing this. And never really break through past a certain level every year. No matter how much harder he worked, no matter how much better he got, it was a it was challenging. And maybe some things could have broken in different ways, or could have opened up other doors, whatever. But he did the work. He showed up as an artist. And in the last year, look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Specifically, in, in the last few years, he's been more of teaching people the process. Okay, here's how to be a creative artist and make a full-time living. And here's what you can do to sell yourself. And here's how you can package yourself. And here's how you can and kind of coaching people. And he's making more money teaching the process. Yeah. Of his art, of his artistry for other creative string players, uh, than he was playing. He was making pretty good amount playing, but it's like the process. It's people want to know how'd you do this for twenty years? Yeah, it's so funny though because this is not a new phenomenon. Like people forget that, like Bach and those guys had to teach. Like they couldn't just make a living off of composition. Now Bach, I mean, he had his church gig and stuff, but like a lot of those old musicians mm. had to take on pupils, rich pupils specifically, because that's like how they made their living. And it's funny, like the old poets are great for this. Like poets never make any money. They've never made any money and they still don't make money. Um, unless you're like maybe Billy Collins or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know who sells a lot of maybe that that Instagram gal I forget her name Rupi yeah, Rupi Core yeah Core yeah she's, she's um, crushing yeah but yeah but, but yeah, that's not way yeah yeah anyway so like uh but like Auden talked about like you can make a lot more money talking about poetry than writing poetry you know yeah. I mean that was like seventy years ago or something so it's always sort of been true that it's a little bit more lucrative you know teaching can be more lucrative than than the actual doing and, and how do we you know stealing like an artist what is the true way to steal like an artist in your mind whether you're an athlete stealing someone else's move whether you're a writer you're a documentary filmmaker business owner what do you think is the the true way to steal like an artist without uh, insulting someone or taking something from someone and but making it your own well the best way is to not get caught (laughs) and the way that you do that is that you it's um 
it's like a good heist, you know, you do, you plan it meticulously. And I mean, it's really not about, there's a, there's a honor amongst thieves and what it is, is it's, it's literally thinking of, it's thinking about things in terms of the collective, not just the individual. What you're trying to do is you're trying to find people out there that have the stuff that you can use that unlocks things in you that then you can create things that are new that sort of make the whole thing rise that everyone around you kind of rise. So it's like, that's what Kobe was talking about when he was like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to just take from these guys that came before me and I'm trying to do better so I can, bring the game to this new place. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's an honor thing. And it's about not just, it's a holistic thing too. It's not just stealing. I mean, the, one of my favorite lines is from a guy that nobody's ever heard of Wilson Misner. He said, you know, if you steal from one writer, it's plagiarism. If you steal from a hundred, it's research, you know? So it's like, you know, right. you don't want to just steal one person's move. You want that guy's hands. You want this guy's legs. You want this, you know, you, you're, you're like Frankensteining monstering these pieces, but then you're like becoming this new thing that nobody's seen before. And you're trying to do it in a way that feels smooth and not stolen. And that's where you like the don't get caught thing, you know, or if you do get caught, it's so good. People are like, you know, (laughs) right. um, But it's just about like, so it's not about stealing from one person and copying that it's stealing from multiple people, lots of people together, transforming it into something of your own. So imitation's not flattery. It's transformation. That's flattery. Mm. It's about, taking out of the gumbo pot, stewing up your own mix and then adding back to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's, it's a, and a lot of it's about private practice. I think one of the problems that a lot of creative people have now is it's too easy to share what you make. So it's very easy for students, for example, to share their like assignments or whatever. And it's like, Hey, I copied this person's, it's like, well, that's great that you did that, but you should probably burn that or keep it in your sketchbook <laughs> and like make something else off of it. You know what I mean? It's just that that thing. Um, but it's just about being like, I also think, you know, if you're open with your process, you know, you don't have to really worry about it. If you yeah. could show people how you did what you did and it didn't feel like a cheat. By showing probably, your work. Yeah. If you could show your work. Uh, and it's yeah, I got this from this person. I got this from this person. I got this from these six people. And yeah. yeah. But if you could just say, well, I found this obscure comic by this guy who sent me something and I just, you know, redrew it. <laughs> you know, that's people always know, sure. you know, I mean, and it's, uh, yeah, I think it's an honor thing. It's, it's about like, are you actually making something new? I think people, so one thing that I think people people get steal like I mean the the problem is is when you have a million people read a book you get a million different books I mean this is true no matter what um, and I think you know for me steal like an artist was a book that was actually a fairly conservative book in the good sense of the term not uh, like not in a political sense it was in the ter- in the sense of what it means to be a student what it means to acknowledge what has come before you and what's around you and to 
find your place in that and to take from all that stuff and then try to put forth something new. You know, that, that to me is really what Steel Like an Artist was about. It was about being a really good student. Um, and that is what I think all the books are sort of in the background. They're about, you know, if I thinking about creative work in terms of as long as you're learning something, you're always moving forward, you know, as long as you're studying and you're, you know, you're learning something, that's how you stay on the edge right. of your abilities. I'm curious, how often do you put out work that you're not proud of, whether it be a blog post or a book mm. or a, a tweet? How often are you like, eh, I'm just I doing would, it to do it, but I'm not yeah, proud. Yeah, I would say the only time I've ever done that is is like, uh, I don't know that I put work that I'm not proud of. I mean, I, I try really hard not to do that. Um, maybe I'm trying to think of what merch we've done that I've been like, <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, when we did a journal, so we did a steal like an artist journal in 2015 and I was real. I was like, uh, these prompted journals. I really don't like them myself. Carrie Smith owns this. She's amazing. She does this really well. I'm not sure I want to do this, but it was one of those things where the money was there and you're like, okay. But the thing for me is that in the process of making that thing, I can't, do work I'm embarrassed by. So I'll make it good somehow, you know? And that was a real learning experience for me. It's sort of like, it was like, okay, maybe I don't like this genre necessarily, but maybe I have something, maybe I can make it good. Maybe right. I could do it the way that I would feel okay with. And really, I mean, that's sort of self-help in general. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of self-help to begin with. So even though I think every book is self-help, in a sense, it's all telling a story. To try um, yeah, life. it's all people pick up books because they want their lives to be a little bit better. You know, that's a real basic thing. Otherwise, mm -hmm. or they want to go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but nonfiction essentially is about tell me something about the world I don't know, or give me a different way of. And really, you know, if you think about the best art, the best art is. Show me a way of seeing, show me something in the world I, I've never looked at or show me a way of looking that I wouldn't have come around to on my own. Um, and so sometimes, you know, the container is just the container and what you mm. fill it with is that's, that's you. And so, yeah, for me, it's like sometimes I take projects that I'm not super proud of, but then I make them into something, if that makes sense. Got it. Yeah, that does. But I don't so, put work out. I'm not proud so of. So if you're if so in private, when you're working on something, you may not be proud of it, but yeah, you don't put sucks, it out I there. Delete it. Yeah. Or don't post it. You know, yeah. there's Got no it. sense in putting junk in the world that you're not. Now you can put stuff you're not sure about. I don't know if this sucks. I don't know if I'm a genius or a hack here. That's great. You, that's the, that's the stuff you should put out in the air to see what it does, because uh, it might hit. I've definitely put things out that I thought were silly or stupid. Yeah. They hit? Yeah, they hit. Stupid I'm, things hit in this culture. It's I a know, dumb it's, culture. I'm curious. I mean, what's the book or project you would love to put out before you die and, and be a hit? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um I would love to have a book look just like my sketchbooks. 
I, I, I would love to do a book that really looked like my journal. And friends have sort of begged me for years, like, you know, you just need to make the books look more like your, mm. your um, sketchbook. And the thing for books with me is I, I want them to be, I love to be read. And the way to be read is to be readable. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think about this a lot with bestsellers. People talk about bestsellers and what it what it takes to be this to the, that, and I'm like, well, I'll tell you one thing that every bestseller has in common. Other, unless it's like a memoir by a political person, I'm talking like a word of mouth yes. bestseller. They all have this in common. They're easier to keep reading than they are to put down. Mm -hmm. They're just it's just a joy. And every bestseller that I've read over the past couple of years, it's been interesting. I always pick up like a bestseller every year, just something that I probably wouldn't necessarily read. One year it was Tara Westover's um, Educated. One year it was Sally Rooney's Normal People. Uh, last year it was, I would have read this book anyway, but it was cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And um, each one of those books has different, it, it has different cultural significance. They're all great. The content's all good. But the one other thing, the one thing that that unites all of them is they just they're oh baby, just you're turning pages, you know. Like whether it's Sally Rooney or educated or cast, I was just like, just turning pages. Mm. And that's 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 what unites a word of mouth bestseller, is it's like you want to turn the page. That yeah. is what the writer is supposed to do. It gets he you know, she gets you to turn the page. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Um, okay. So when are you going to put that out? Even if it doesn't, how do you make it page turnable? And Who cares? I mean, you know, <laughs> I figure I'll figure it out at some point. I have a book that I'm working, you know, I, I, I have such patience now. I mean, I guess if I was diagnosed, which I guess we all are in a sense, I mean, you can't We're all dying. You can't, yeah, you can't like, you know, you can't assume you have that much time. But I, the other thing, and I'm trying to get people to understand this with me is I'm like, I own my own media. Like if I want to do something like that I really like, I just put it on my blog and anyone can see it. It, like I could do anything. I could do a, I could do a drawing. I could do a movie, anything I want to do. I just put it on the blog and anyone can read it. And there's such a beautiful, I have a direct connection to people that way. The books are not that the books are crystallizations of thought in certain moments in time packaged. They have an ISBN and a barcode on the back of them. And they're supposed to do something and they're supposed to last throughout time. They're supposed to be like, objects that will kind of endure for a while and when i'm making them they have that very specific purpose so if i want the juice of making something really wild and just putting it out there i've got my website for that right and having that balance of like your own media versus the media that's like oh you get a publisher to pay you money for it and then they have a big ad campaign and blah blah blah, blah, blah. you know all that machinery is is fine but like I mean, the DIY of the web for me is just, ooh, you know, that is really good. And honestly, if I was going to do that sketchbook book like I was talking about, I mean, I'd just self-publish it. Right. You know, 
So we'll see. I love it, man. What is a what is a question you wish more people asked you that you never got asked? I'm shocked when I when I used to go to readings, which we know no one's been to one in ages. I'm shocked that people just don't ask what I'm reading. Where I'm, you know, I, I never. I'm 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 always like, whenever I've been at a reading with a writer, and I get a chance, I stand up and ask them what they're reading. I mean, just it's the first thing that comes in my mind. Like, what are you reading? Barely anyone asks me what I'm reading. Could oh. be because I tell everyone what I'm reading because it's on my blog <laughs> and everybody knows. And they're like, well, we don't care. We've seen what you're reading. So, um, well, what are you reading then? Weird stuff. I'm reading about like, I'm reading this book by uh, Gaston Bachelard uh, called The Poetics of Space. I'm working on a book about uh, sort of like home life and creative work and kids and stuff. And so I'm, thinking about the house and how houses can be more creative spaces. And so I'm reading that. I mean, that's kind of obscure philosophy book. I'm reading a lot about owls because I have an owl living in the palm tree behind my house. A screech owl. Yeah. So I'm reading about owls and palm trees. Um, I'm reading a really, uh, really good essay collection by this guy named Brian Doyle um, who died a couple of years ago. He was a Catholic writer. Uh, I think he was, he wrote these really short choppy essays sort of about like his kids and God and all kinds of stuff. It's very good. I'd never heard of him before. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. I like to read a lot of different stuff at the same time. And then all the stuff kind of talks to each other, mm-hmm. you know, and, and something comes out of that. Um, that's great. I love and, it. Man. And, and, and I, a really easy thing. It's always interesting to me because when you talk to someone in person, you're like, what TV are you watching? Cause everybody's watching TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could always, I'm always like, yeah, just ask me what I'm into and then we can start. Then you can tell me what you're reading and you know, that's, that's cool. Kinda... I like it, man. <laughs> uh, this is a question I ask everyone at the end called the three truths. So I'd like you to imagine a hypothetical situation where it's, your last day on earth many years from now, you get to pick the day whenever you want to die, but it's that time. Um, and you've accomplished everything you want to accomplish. You've written all the books. You've done the things in your family, your life. Everything you've wanted to do, you've created, put it in the world, manifested, given back, all that stuff. But for whatever reason, all your work has to go with you. All your creativity, your blog, your books, no one has access to your content anymore. It goes with you to the next place. Mm. But you get a piece of paper and a pen before you turn the lights out, and you get to write down three things you know to be true from your experiences in life, three lessons that you would share with the world. And this is all we would have to remember you by. What would you say are those three things? Mm. And it, it has to be – it's not like the most important truths. It's just my work summed up in three things. It's It's three – the only three things you could share with the world that you would leave behind. I zoned out for a minute. I was like, <laughs> yeah, what? Uh, but like, well, what about what so-and-so Any said? Any lesson. It could be from someone else's lesson you like. It could be your own idea. But three things that you would leave behind as lessons to the world. Uh, you are the sum of what you let in and out of your life. So – that would be number one. That's still like an artist. That's that what you take in is what you will put out. Um, 
I think that that to me is the big. So like build your own family tree, take it all in. Like you are the sum of your influences. Um, number two would be something that Kenny Goldsmith said that I have sort of adopted as my own is small things, something small every day gets big over time. So little bits and pieces of effort, daily chunks of effort stack up into months, into years, into bodies of work. And number three, I think would be, uh, be kind. The world needs better human beings. It doesn't necessarily need uh, better artists. Those are powerful. <laughs> I think those are the three, I would say. I think be kind is pretty much... And notice I didn't say be nice. And still like an artist, I say be nice. That's too Midwestern to me. I would say <laughs> now, knowing what I know about the world, I would say be kind. Kindness isn't necessarily being nice. Kind is a different thing. Yeah. Um, I would say be kind. A lot of nice people from Ohio. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we have yeah. Nice Midwestern nice is a very particular thing, as is Texas nice, actually. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, you know, but being kind, that's a whole different thing. For sure. What did I say? So I said, you're the sum of your influences. Mm -hmm. Something small every day. Small things get big over time. And be kind. The world is a small town. Very true. And you have uh, a, a trilogy, an audio trilogy called Steal Like an Artist Audio Trilogy. Uh, that's on Audible right now. And it's online. my three most important books wrapped up in one easy audio book. And people can get that right now. They can go to your website, austincleon.com and that's check right. that out. Or anywhere you get uh, your audio books, just type my name in. It'll come up. And it's your voice, right? It is my voice. Recorded in my bedroom during a <laughs> pandemic in Austin, Texas. So people can check this out. Uh, it's different than the physical book. Obviously, it's a different experience. So make sure it you is. It out. It, it's um. It's interesting. I think it's depending on what you're going for. It's more straightforward than the books because yeah. there's nothing really to distract you from the message. It's just a linear. Your eyes not darting around to the. It's less of a bathroom read experience. You know, people tell me, oh, yeah, I, lo I love your books. And then they get a little sheepish and they're like, I keep them on the back of the commode. And I'm like, that <laughs> is a huge compliment to me. Yeah. In fact, that is where I want to be because everyone goes there. Um, but there, the, the audiobook's a little bit more streamlined, which is interesting to me. I think it, it brings out different messages. So yeah. I like doing it. It was fun. Yeah, that's great, man. Steal Like an Artist audio trilogy. You guys can get it right now. You also have your newsletter that comes out weekly, which I highly recommend, austincleon.com slash newsletter. So check that out. And all the other cool things you have going on with your books, uh, I think people should just get your books in general because they're easy to read and consume, but also such powerful. Uh, you, you make the complex simple in an easy-to-understand way. So I recommend everyone checking those out. And um, you're also on social media, Austin Cleon everywhere. Um, where else can we support you? Just go to austincleon.com and poke around. That's my world. There you, you go. Know. Get inside yeah, the that's, mind. That's the thing to do. It's my home base. Been there, there for go. 15 years. I'll probably be there for another 15 years, hopefully. So 
Love that, man. Well, <laughs> well congrats and everything. I want to acknowledge you Thank before you. I before I ask the final question. I want to acknowledge you for uh, giving people permission to be more creative and put their work out in the world. I think you've created an incredible movement with your work, with your blog, with your newsletter, and your books to give people the inspiration, the encouragement, the push they need to say, okay, I can do this. I can put this out there. I can not be so afraid. And I think uh, the world needs more people to express their creativity, whether they make money from it or not. They need more people to have that encouragement, and you've been doing that for a long time. So I really acknowledge you for the gift you bring to the world in your unique way in helping so many of us. And I have my final question for you is what is your definition of greatness? Oh, man, greatness. Uh, my definition of greatness. I don't know. It's weird because I don't think about greatness a lot. I, uh, greatness is, seems beyond greatness seems like you'll know it if it comes from someone else. <laughs> I don't know. I could, I would never think of myself as great. Um, I'm really whiffing this. Uh, I just think greatness is probably on an individual level. It's probably your days looking the way you want them to look. Mm. I feel like that's, well, that's at least my definition of success. Maybe that's mm. not greatness. I think greatness is probably just uh, a sense of being uh, expansive, a sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself. I think that's real greatness uh, is either building something beyond yourself, you know, kind of spreading your, tentacles out in the world or creating your own world but but just being knowing that you're a piece of a bigger whole i would say that that to me is 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 real greatness is is a sense of expansiveness my man austin cleon my ohio friend appreciate you very much thanks for being here man ohio boys unite that's it thank you for having me this was really fun Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this to all my creatives out there or all the creatives at heart who want to put their work into the world. I hope this inspired you to do just that. If it did, make sure to share this with a few friends. Post it on social media. Tag me, tag Austin, and text a few friends right now. You can use the show notes link, lewishouse.com slash 1123, or just copy and paste this wherever you're listening to this episode and share it with a few friends to keep spreading the message of greatness to more people in the world. And if this is your first time here, then do me a favor and click the subscribe button over on Apple Podcast right now so you can stay up to date on the latest and greatest from the School of Greatness. And I want to leave you with this quote from Maya Angelou who said, you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, if no one has told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.